Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'd like to now get started and introduce uh, Liz, Lizbeth Barkley. She's a TVI uh, for the assessment program at the California School for the Blind. Good morning. Thank you. I have the honor this morning of introducing our esteemed keynote speaker, Dr. Ray Reutzel. But first, I would just like to take a moment to talk about someone else who is very much on our minds, especially here in California during this literacy conference, Dr. Sally Mangold. Sally was our extraordinary mentor and friend and treasure here in California, and I know she was a treasure to many others as well. Uh, she was a person whose ideas about Braille literacy evolved and deepened throughout her long and distinguished career. It is in her spirit of creativity and inquiry that Northern California AER is co-sponsoring this presentation by Dr. Reutzel. I first heard Dr. Reutzel speak at the International Reading Association Conference uh, two years ago. And uh, you're really in for a treat this morning. His accomplishments in the field of education are too numerous to mention but I'll highlight a few. He's recognized internationally for his research on the complexities of literacy development and instruction. Since 2001, Dr. Reutzel has been the Emma Eccles Jones Distinguished Professor and Endowed Chair of Early Childhood Education at Utah State University. As Endowed Chair, he actively participates in teaching, performing research, and mentoring faculty and graduate students. His research focuses on evidence-based reading and writing instruction and teacher knowledge assessment. Dr. Reutzel has served as co-chair of one of my favorite journals, The Reading Teacher, and he's written many books and publications about the most important topics relating to teaching children to read. This morning, Dr. Ray Reutzel will speak about the findings of the National Reading Paddle and research on evidence-based fluency instruction. And this topic has heightened interest uh, to teachers of students with visual impairments, especially since um, the ABC study and the findings of the ABC study uh, that the study participants lost ground with their print reading peers as they became older with regard to Braille reading fluency. Dr. Reutzel's comments about general reading fluency are very pertinent to us throughout this entire conference. And that's because, um, well, because they are pertinent to us, but also because Sally would agree with Kay Holbrook when she says that we teach reading. And with that thought in mind, I'd like to introduce Dr. Ray Reitzel. Good morning. How are you today? It's Saturday. I really admire you for getting out of bed this early. I didn't want to. <laughs> 
I called my, my wife called me early this morning and she said, "Are you up yet?" And I said, "Yes." And she says, "Why?" And I said, "I don't know." <laughs> it's great to be with you. Um, I feel a little bit like a fish out of water here because, as you have heard in the introduction given, um, I am an early childhood educator who focuses uh, my research on young children learning to read. Uh, I tell people, quite frankly, that I lose interest in children after they can do up their own zipper and button their own clothes. Um, I really do uh, enjoy it. My wife's a kindergarten teacher, so we're, we're well matched in our, in our interests in levels of children. But I have taught uh, children much older than that uh, to read. And I've also headed up a couple of universities' reading clinics over the years, having worked with students who have a variety of disabilities and struggle to learn to read. So I hope what I have to say today will be of interest to all of you as I share with you the findings of the evidence base of the field of reading in this session related to fluency, and then I have some other sessions during the day where I'll be talking about the evidence in vocabulary and the evidence in comprehension work. So uh, without further ado, we'll begin. Jake is learning to read. He's five. He points at a picture in a zoo book and says, Look, Mama, it's a frickin' elephant. <laughs> what did you call it? It's a frickin' elephant, Mama. It says so on the picture. And so it does. A-F-R-I-C-A-N, a frickin' elephant. Sort of makes a lot of things a frickin', doesn't it? <laughs> a frickin' lion, a frickin'... Now, I want to share with you this morning the... Uh, the evidence base from which we draw the conclusions around this thing that we refer to as scientific research in literacy. I have pictured here on this slide what I refer to as the foundational documents of the field of literacy relative to this scientific literature. On your left is a little blue book entitled Preventing Reading Difficulties in Young Children. It was edited by Catherine Snow at Harvard University and was published by the National Research Council. This formed the basis of the first reading reform effort of the federal government under this scientific literacy banner. It came out under Secretary Riley, who was Secretary of the United States Department of Education under President Clinton. And uh, this movement was called the Reading Excellence Act. And it drove the Reading Excellence Act reform for schools where children were in high poverty and were low performing. Subsequent to that, and as a result thereof, um, there was a panel put together by the federal government in the mid-1990s. Uh, this panel was known and is known to you now as the National Reading Panel. It was composed of a group of individuals who had an interest in literacy, but not so much of an interest that they had a conflict. 
None of the members of the panel were currently employed by any of the literacy publishers of tests or teaching materials. Most of the members of that panel were handpicked out of a variety of fields that represented everything from physics. The chair of the panel was a, phys was a physics professor and chancellor of the University of Maryland system to a professor of linguistics in Canada, um, to educational psychologists, teacher educators, special educators, and even a pediatri pediatric neurologist by the name of Sally Shewitz. So you can see this panel was a very interesting group of people. And their sole task was to call through the literature that had been published on teaching reading and to derive from that literature base what we knew. Now, I grew up in California. Uh, I was telling Liz over breakfast that I uh, went to school in Sunnyvale and Santa Clara. Some of you may know Rayner Elementary School. That's where I went to elementary school and Patrick Henry Intermediate and Cupertino High in that area. Um, I just uh, am so grateful to be back to California. I just can't tell you. It's... But uh, this panel, uh, the National Reading Panel, was uh, charged by the United States Congress to go through the literature and to tell the nation what we know about the teaching of reading. Now, I'm sure, again, from being in, here in California, if you have been for very long, you know about something called whole language. Now, this has been a great debate in the field of reading for a long time. If you were to study the history of, of literacy, you would see that it's, it happens about every 30 years that we have a tug war between the phonicators and the holy languagers. <laughs> okay? That one really raised eyebrows when I used it at a religious university once, phonicators. Um, these two groups of folks who are arguing essentially that, that the, the, the work of a reader is either meaning-based or print-based, code-based, is, is really quite, frankly, a silly argument. It's both. But we somehow love to get into it about every 30 years. And the last wave that went through was during the whole language movement and scores on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, or the NAEP test, plummeted to the lowest point they had been in measured history. And notwithstanding those um, data, California was ranked dead last among all states in the Union of readers tied with Louisiana. That was not a pretty day when it was announced in Anaheim at the International Reading Association meeting on May the 5th, 1995. I was there. You could hear an audible groan in the room of 20,000 conference attenders. So, what do we know? Well, we know from the National Reading Panel quite a few things. I want you to have a sense of the scope of their work before we get into it. This panel called through 100,000 published studies. 100,000. And they had just two years to do it. 
with a staff of 20 people. You know the government, they're never terribly liberal with how they fund things with time or money, at least not in education. So I admire the people who did this. If any of you have ever tried to look at the work of 100,000 studies, I did a study a few years ago where we looked at 4,000 about Kildas. So I wanted to kind of put that on the table for you, 100,000. When they were finished looking at the 100,000, they finally decided that the question everyone was asking was, if we do this kind of a thing to a person who's learning to read, will it help them or not? So what they were asking was, does this stuff work that we're doing? Do the interventions that we employ have a beneficial effect for learners? Now, the only kind of research that gives you that kind of cause and effect outcome, uh, they decided as a panel, was experimental work. So when they drew that line, um, the 100,000 studies dropped to just over 1,000. That means that the evidence base of literacy rests on a causal base of about 1,000 studies. Um, can you imagine if medicine were in the same position? <laughs> we have a real dearth of causal studies in the field of, of literacy teaching and learning. From that small evidence base, and I, I, I consider that relatively small for a field that's been, you know, in the business of studying how to teach people to read and write for well over 150 years. They came up with five major findings, uh, areas of findings that help kids. The first was phonemic awareness. The second was phonics. The third was fluency. The fourth was vocabulary, and the fifth was comprehension. They also examined how effective teacher education was and how well technology supports early learners. Those findings were much less conclusive than the first five. Subsequent to that, other books have been published, such as the one shown here, The Voice of Evidence and Reading Research, and we have had several reports from the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which is pictured to your far right. From the first document, this quote is a good one, from Burns, Griffin, and Snow. The mission of public schooling is to offer every child full and equal educational opportunity, regardless of their background, education, and the income of their parents. To achieve this goal, no time is as precious or as fleeting as the first years of formal schooling. Research consistently shows that children who get off to a good start in reading rarely stumble. Those who fall behind tend to stay behind for the rest of their academic lives. It appears that the learning of reading is something that has some time sensitivity attached to it. If you look at the work of Connie Jewell, professor of education at Stanford University, her work seems to indicate that a child who doesn't achieve third grade level reading ability by third grade has about an 88% chance six years later of not being on grade level in the ninth grade. And that just spirals up, downward or upward, whichever way you want to think of it.
Now, until the year 2000, the NAEP data trend score suggested very, very high and unacceptable rates of below basic reading proficiency among vast segments of our population. And the scary part of this was is that the achievement gap was growing among those populations. Uh, in this particular, this is the cover of the fourth grade 2007 NAEP report. If you've never seen a NAEP report card and are interested in these data, you can go to uh, uh, ed.gov uh, and uh, type in NAEP, and it'll take you right to the uh, website and look up reading report card. Now, I hope I've made this large enough, but these trend lines that I'm showing up here are disaggregated by the 90th, the 75th, the 50th, the 25th, and the 10th percentiles. They represent a slice of reading achievement among young children, fourth graders, from the years of 1992 to the year 2007. Notice that the top line, our 90th percent readers, is nearly flat, having made no significant gains on the NAEP test in the last 15 years. Also note that this, the top score on this test achieved in the last 15 years is 264 out of a possible scaled score of 500. I'd hardly, we're hardly breaking through the ceiling on this test with our best readers. So one of my concerns as I look at these data, what are we doing for children who are gifted? Are we putting a ceiling on them by the way in which we're teaching reading in our schools? it looks as if they are making little or no progress. And so I, I, I worry myself a bit about what I refer to as advanced readers at risk. If a doctor were to see a line that on an oscilloscope, I suspect they would panic. We would refer to that person as flatlined. Now, if you look at the bottom line, which is the, uh, the lowest tenth percent, the tenth percentile readers, you'll notice a much more erratic set of data. The lines move up and down during the 1990s in fairly stark ways for a national data set. Remember that a one-point shift on this test in this population is a significant difference. <laughs> From 1992 to 1994, when whole language became the way of doing business in most of the country. Notice that for young children of fourth grade age and lower, during that period of time who were struggling to learn to read, their reading growth dropped a precipitous 20 points on this national assessment. This is what brought about the end of whole language. That picture right there. Because what it demonstrated was it did not hurt the better readers to teach them with whole language. But it disenfranchised the struggling readers because reading was anything but natural for them. And the data showed it quite starkly. Again, if you look at the data, you'll note that gap scores among students white and African-American, white and Hispanic on the lower chart, have been narrowing since we've started to use these evidence-based practices. 
You'll note that in 1994, at the widest gap point, 38 points separated whites from African Americans on this test, and 35 points separated whites from uh, Hispanic members of this data set. You'll notice now that the gap has narrowed in 2007 to the narrowest point that it has been uh, in the last 15 years. That's because we've started to use these evidence-based practices, and we are starting to narrow that gap more and more and more with this knowledge that we now employ. Now, I want to get your heads around another idea. I want to get your heads around the notion of how expensive this is economically for the United States. And so I turn to a quote by a, a book entitled The 90% Reading Goal out of Washington State. And the quote reads as follows. The most expensive burden we place on our society is those students we have failed to teach to read well. The silent army of low readers who move through our schools siphoning off the lion's share of administrative resources emerge into society as adults lacking the single prerequisite for managing their lives and acquiring additional training. They are chronically unemployed, underemployed, or unemployable. They form the single largest identifiable group of those whom we incarcerate and to whom we provide assistance, housing, medical care, and other social services. They perpetuate and enlarge the problem by creating another generation of poor readers. Imagine an economy that's emerging from an industrial age to an information services economy where we have this problem becoming exacerbated in our society of more poor readers. It will create a bifurcated economic society of haves and have-nots like we have never seen. And remember how expensive it is to keep one person behind bars compared to how expensive it is to hire one teacher for a classroom of children. Now, as I've alluded to earlier, we had reading wars. They've largely gone away. Um, there are still some who have taken positions up as guerrilla warriors in the field and, and shoot from behind the trees and the bushes, the rubber bullets of the old holy language era and the old fornicating era. I think most people have landed somewhere in the middle and realized that you need both, and that's what the evidence base suggests. But when we do have disputes, the real question is, how should we resolve them as a profession? Should we turn to political processes, or should we turn to evidence-based processes? Our profession in education has decided, with a little help from its friends, to move to a more evidence-based approach and away from political. It tends to settle the, dis the disputes with fewer faddish changes. Now, for teachers, evidence-based approaches afford several advantages. Number one, almost every teacher I know who works with children for very long is going to be approached by a vendor. And the vendor is going to say something like this. I have a program for you. And if you buy this program, it will fix your problems. Now, we know that's not true. But teachers are vendorized on a regular basis. 
And what we need are consumer protections for teachers that keep them from being drawn into what I refer to as the 19 or the 1880s kind of snake oil peddler who comes through town and has, you know, a, a formula in a jar that will fix everything. It's not true. And as a consequence, like WebMD, educators now have their own website to check out these programs that vendors sell. If you're not aware of it, you need to know about it. It's called whatworksclearinghouse.ed.gov. It's all one word, whatworksclearinghouse, all lowercase, .ed, E-D, .gov. In this clearinghouse, programs have been third-party evaluated or not, and that's what you'll find out. If there is evidence to support what the vendor's telling you, or they're just making specious claims. So what does the evidence base say about teaching reading fluency? Now, I like to read outside my field occasionally. So when I was attending an inter the Institute of Education Sciences Research Conference two summers ago, I had the pleasure of listening to a man named Atul Gawande ad address the audience. He's a surgeon. Uh, a well-published one. He's had two books that have been on the Times bestsellers list, a book called Complications, and this second one called Better, A Surgeon's Notes on Performance. Now, you're probably thinking, well, that's kind of an odd book for an early childhood educator to be consuming. But after listening to him talk about why evidence base is so important, I read his book. Why do we need to turn to an evidence base? And why is it that sometimes even evidence-based practices don't work? There's a question. Why is it that some effective practices we know work don't work? Is it because the practices don't work? or because we can't get the people to use them diligently enough for them to work. I want you to let that one just ruminate for a minute. He tells the story of a, of a doctor in the 1800s by the name of Ignaz Semmelweis. If you can say that three times, you're pretty good. Ignaz Semmelweis was a hospital administrator in Austria, in Vienna, Austria. He noticed that mothers who came to the hospital and gave birth to their children in the hospital were dying 300 out of every thousand. But women who remained home and had their children at home were dying at 30 out of a thousand. And so they coined a phrase called childbirth fever. This was their explanation for the 270 that were dying. And Semmelweis intuited, because there was no evidence base, intuitive reasoning, thought that maybe if the health care professionals who were caring for these mothers would simply wash their hands every time they went from one 
person to the next when they gave health care that it might help, that these mothers might be somehow getting sick being in the hospital. Now, remember, this was, this was before the time we knew about viruses and bacteria. This was in the early 1800s. So this, uh, this hospital administrator followed his people around in a very dictatorial, almost Hitlerian fashion and made sure that these folks washed their hands. And what happened a year later? Maternal mortality rates dropped to 30 in a 1,000 in the hospital. This was even before we knew about germs. Now, now Semmelweis lost his job because he didn't have really great relationships with his, with his colleagues in his working environment, being as tough as he was. But this is really interesting. When he could get the health care providers to simply wash their hands diligently, the mortality rates dropped to that similar to giving birth at home. So what do we know today about health care providers? Are you ready to, to not want to go to the hospital? <laughs> this is what Atul Gawande wrote in his book in 2008. Our hospital statistics show what studies everywhere else have shown, that we doctors and nurses wash our hands one-third to one-half as often as we are supposed to, close quote. Does hand-washing work? Yes, it does. But do health care providers do what works diligently enough to keep infectious diseases out of hospitals? No, they don't. So the question is not about whether or not what I'm going to tell you about today is effective. We have scores of studies showing what I'm going to talk about today. When they are used diligently, these practices are effective. The question is whether or not we can get teachers and other educational providers to use these sufficiently and diligently enough for them to have the effect that we want them to have and that we know they can have. Uh, that, that one set me back in my heels when I read that. Because I don't know if you've followed educational research much lately, but there was a thing called Reading First that's been out there for a while. And uh, they reported that uh, Reading First didn't work. Well, there's two ways to interpret the findings. One is the practices used in Reading First didn't work. Well, or what else could have been the possibility? The providers didn't use those practices diligently enough for them to work. Not to mention the fact that the regression discontinuity design they used was contaminated, but I won't go off on one of my research diatribes. All right. From the preventing reading difficulties, this is what we know about fluency. Because the ability to obtain meaning, meaning from print, depends so strongly on the development of word recognition and reading fluency, both of the latter, word recognition and reading fluency, should be regularly assessed in the classroom, permitting timely and effective instructional response. So now you've heard of a type of assessment called progress monitoring. 
That is how we get that timely, effective, that timely and effective response to students just as prescribed. Now we go to the National Reading Panel. What did they find? When it comes to developing a student's fluency, there have been two branches of main, two, two main branches of practices in working with readers. The first branch has to do with having readers read out loud with someone listening to them and read the text that they have, that they've been reading multiple times for practice. So we call that repeated reading. So that's one of the branches. The other main branch of practice goes off in a divergent direction. That branch is uh, where a student goes off on their own, picks any book they would like to read. They do not read aloud. They read silently. And they are not asked to... Um, uh, account for the time they spend reading in any way, and that was intended to help students develop reading motivation. So our two modes of practice have been out loud, repeated reading, where somebody listens to you and gives you feedback, or off silently on your, on your own where you don't interact with anyone nor to account to anyone and read any book you want. Get the two practices. Now they've been referred to, one of them's been referred to on the, on the one branch is guided oral repeated reading. And the other branch most often has been known by a series of acronyms you may have heard of. One of them is SSR or silent sustained reading, which of course, having been a kindergarten first grade teacher, kids neither read silently nor sustained in those grades. <laughs> so I refer to it as, uh, Self-selected reading. Uh, there's other acronyms. Dear, drop everything and read. Okay. Well, those are the two main branches. What do we know? Guided repeated oral reading, first branch, national reading panel. And the other one, independent reading, second branch. On the first branch... Guided Oral Repeated Reading. The National Reading Panel analyzed 77 quasi-matched or true experimental studies in a meta-analysis to determine that in every single one of the 77 studies, now, you, you, know, you know education well enough to know we don't get that very often, where 77 of anything agrees with 77. But all 77 studies converged on a singular finding, that when you have children read out loud with someone to listen to them and give them feedback, and they practice the same text more than once, we get salutary effects on students' reading fluency. So... We're going to talk this morning quite a bit about different ways that a person can get children involved in developing this reading fluency through reading out loud. There is no question that this practice is effective. 
to have 77 studies in education converge on a singular finding is beyond miraculous. If there's something beyond a miracle, I don't know what it is, but this is it. How large of an effect size did the National Reading Panel find that doing this practice diligently with students will have on learners? We're now at the point in education where we can quantify, like medicine can, the size of the expected effect. Well, it was 0.41 of a standard deviation on a standardized, nationally administered reading achievement test. That's roughly half a standard deviation, not quite, but approaching. And if you know that under the normal curve, the, the first standard deviation from the mean is accounts for 34 percentile points. So you can kind of get a, a rough notion in your head real quick that, that we're talking about roughly, you know, 14 to 15 percentile point advantage. Now, if you could raise your students' average scores in your classrooms 15 percentile points, would you change your practice? Well, most teachers will say, uh-huh, gladly. So this is a large enough effect size we ought to pay attention to it. Now, when we talk about fluency, what are we talking about? What, does the national panel, what did the national panel mean when they talked about fluency? First, con first element, students who read accurately, and, and you know these kids when you hear them, <laughs> You, you can tell a fluent reader when you listen to them, can't you? You just have a sense around it. But to actually have to explicate it to someone else, what makes that person fluent, a little more difficult. So the first thing that we want to talk about are the characteristics of fluent readers. First one. They're accurate. They don't guess what's on the page. They read what's on the page. They don't make it up as they go. And during the whole language era, children were told that it was an okay thing to do to just skip words if you didn't know them or guess them. But accuracy was not the name of the game. It was getting a holistic sense of the meaning. Well, this kind of an approach led students and teachers away from teaching students how to decode the print. And it actually led to more students not being able to decode. I love these, these, these uh, extremes in education. I always figure as soon as they come around, I'll open a reading clinic on the other side of the divide. So if they're emphasizing whole language, I'll open a phonics clinic. If they're emphasizing phonics, I'll open up a whole language clinic, you know, so the kids can actually read. Um, these are not healthy. But readers who read well and fluently don't just make it up. They read what's on the page, and they do so relatively effortlessly. And how do you recognize effort? Well, there are, if you're careful to observe, or even not so careful, you will notice things on the face of the reader. You know, there are furrowed brows and squinty eyes and rigid body. Because they're what? They're putting forth everything they have. Fluent readers don't look like that. Second characteristic, their reading speed or rate is adequate for their grade level. We're not trying to develop reader racer rabbits. We're trying to develop readers who read rapidly enough they can have enough attentional capacity left for the grade level reading they're doing 
to divert some of it to comprehension, not to just decoding. And so we have to get that speed up, and that speed is also an indicator of effort, isn't it? Kids who read like this, the dog ran fast, fast. Ever heard those? I have. And then teachers ask the silly question. So tell me, what did you just read? Now, if you know anything how the human mind works, you know that that kind of reading represents so much effort that there is no attentional capacity left for comprehension. So the answer invariably will be, I don't know. Speed represents effort. Notice any skilled behavior, and the fluent performer of that behavior has speed. Quickness in typing, golfing, playing the piano. Think of any skilled behavior. Someone who's really good at it. Do they struggle with speed? Then there's expression. Good, fluent readers are expressive readers. They know how to give intensity and pitch. They know how to break or give juncture at appropriate points to their reading. One of the things we haven't figured out yet, though, is whether or not expression helps a student comprehend or if comprehending helps them express. Right now, the relationships appear to be reciprocal, and we haven't been able to untangle that. And finally, you know and I know that good, fluent readers aren't just people who read accurately, effortlessly, quickly, relatively quickly. I won't say so quickly that, uh, you know, you're ridiculous. And expressively, when they're done, they could talk about what they've read. They've understood it. They've comprehended it. A fast, accurate reader with expression who can't tell you what they've read is not a fluent reader. They're a fluent word caller, but they're not a reader. So I want to make that very, very clear. Fluent readers understand what they read. Now, I want to put away another little myth right while, while we're on the topic of speed. Speed reading does not happen. Okay? Now, if you doubt me, look up the work of Justin, Justin Carpenter at Carnegie Mellon University, McConkie and Rayner at Cornell and the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And look at the work they've done on eye movement photography over the years, and you will understand that the human eye can no more go 3,000 words a minute than I can run as quick as a cheetah. We do not have the musculature set up in our eye to drive the eye at that speed. Nor does our cognitive apparatus allow us to process at that speed. It is impossible, and anybody who tells you they can teach you to speed read is pulling a fast one. Now, I don't have time to tell you about how they pull the fast one, 
but we've untangled that con job. Now, here's another thing we know about fluent readers. Skilled readers can read words in context three times as fast and in lists two times faster than kids who struggle learning to read. Now, how do you interpret that finding? It's easy. Fluent readers can read words anywhere they see them better than kids who struggle. Yeah, I know, it sounds kind of silly and obvious, but that's what we know. Context does not help. See, that was one of the things the whole languages put out there. Struggling readers are slower because of problems in list reading as context doesn't make any unique contribution to the variance you find in fluency rates or accuracy. What we know is this interactive compensatory hypothesis of Stanovich up in Canada has told us. Poor readers use context to guess what the word is and to decode it. Good readers use context to construct meaning. They use context completely differently. Poor readers are so poor they are not comprehending. <laughs> and so what, how are they using the context? to make guesses. Good readers are reading with enough fluency that they are using the context to construct meaning. So context added to words for poor readers doesn't help them get to be better readers, at least in terms of fluency, of word accuracy, word calling. Now, we also know that in every classroom of readers, there's a distribution from kids who are great, fluent readers to kids who are very much struggling. That is important to understand because no one approach to teaching children this thing called reading fluency will work for the whole class. You have to have a toolbox. Fortunately, our toolbox in developing fluency is a pretty good one with lots of interesting ways of doing it. Now, the National Reading Panel said to teachers, you shouldn't work on reading fluency until about halfway through first grade. By that point in time, children should have built up enough decoding ability that they should be able to start working on the whole of reading fluency, speed and understanding. Now, my wife, being a kindergarten teacher, said when she heard that, oh, I don't have to work on reading fluency. And I said, oh, contraire, my dear. <laughs> you have to work on pre-reading fluency. You see, there are things that build up to reading that you must also be able to do fluently enough in order for reading fluency to even take off. One of the things we found in the National Early Literacy Panel Report that just came out last year. Now we have a national reading panel. Now we have a national early literacy panel report. Is that letter naming is the single most powerful predictor of a child's reading achievement in first grade and continues to be a significant predictor even into high school. Did you hear that? The ability to name the letters quickly and accurately is the single best and most powerful predictor of whether or not you'll be a good reader at the end of first grade, and it still predicts a significant amount of the variance in your reading in high school.
So, as I told my wife, do not underestimate. Good question. <laughs> All of that. She asked, does, just naming it, or is it the sound? And what else did you ask? Or write it? <laughs> um, the way the National Early Literacy Panel defined letter naming was knowing the name and the sound. Now, that's a bit of a, a convolution. And I'm going to talk just in a minute here about why just naming it's important. This, this finding suggests that letter naming uniquely predicts first grade oral reading fluency more so than does knowing the letter sound relationship. And you're probably sitting here going, okay, you just said that they need to know both. Yes, I did. But the most recent research that's been done by Laura Justice and some of her colleagues on letter naming suggests the following. When you learn the letter names, you become sensitized in all but about six letters to the letter sounds. Because the letter sounds are pronounced in the letter name, either in the first or second articulated position of the letter name. For the letter T, the sound is found in the first articulated position, T. -t. In the letter M, the letter sound is heard in the second articulated position, M. So by learning the letter names quickly and accurately, teachers need only point this out to students that the sound is found in almost all letter names. So by knowing the names, you are also simultaneously sensitized to the letter sounds. That is why this finding comes out, that it's the best unique predictor. So I told my wife, you must teach your children to read, to know those letters and to know them well. It doesn't work well when children look at a letter and go, mm, uh, I, is, I, mm, that's an M, isn't it? That's not going to really help you if it takes that long to identify a letter when you get to a three-letter word and you're supposed to do what? Blend the sounds to say the word. If you're sitting there going, hmm, I think that first letter is a M. Um, what does M, mm, mm, uh, the second letter? That will not help you later in reading, will it? You've got to have those letters like that. And so do not, as a teacher of reading, underestimate the value in making sure that your students know the letters very, very well in terms of both accuracy and quickness. If they don't, they are unlikely to be able to progress to the next stage in word recognition. Now, the next stage is a 50-50 deal. Word recognition is 50% one thing and 50% another. And when I tell teachers this, they look at me like, how so? Well, word recognition is made up of two, two sets of words recognition abilities. One is, one set is called sight words. These are words that are memorized. And so teachers need to teach students strategies for memorizing a set of words. The other part of this 50-50 deal is decoding, or we refer to that as blending. 
Now, I, I make my teachers swear off the use of the terms, sound it out. Because that term can be used both in, 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 in two different ways, blending words and reading and segmenting words and writing. And I've heard teachers say that to kids. Well, just sound it out. You know, they can ask, how do you read this word? Sound it out. Teacher, how do you write this word? Sound it out. Those are two completely different processes. In writing, it's segmenting an oral word into its sounds and then representing those sounds with written letters. In reading, it is looking at visual symbols, assigning sounds to those symbols, and blending those sounds together to pronounce a word. And you're using the same instructional command. Sound it out. That's not good instruction. It's good commands for dogs, but it's not very good for teaching. <laughs> okay, so let's be clear on that. 50-50 deal. 50% sight words, 50% learning how to blend words. What's the 50% of sight words? Teachers ask me all the time. When you say 50% of sight words, I mean, what does that mean? What does that look like? I think it will shock you when I share with you what I'm about to hear that only 25 words in the English language make up 33.4% of all the words you and I read as adults. That's a, big, that's a big part of fluency if you can get a third of the words out of your way by knowing them like that. We do not want kids looking at the word the and saying, Now blend that one. <laughs> See how far you get. We do not want kids stumbling over that word because the is one in every 20 words you read. Did you know that? Pick up any piece of print you want, count up 20 words, and on average, the will appear one in every 20 words. And the words a and the... <laughs> 11% of everything we read. Isn't that, sh isn't that shocking? We want those kids to know those words like that. But they're hard to remember, though, because they don't mean anything. Go ahead, ask a four-year-old, the dog, one word or two. Listen for their response. The is a syllable until they learn to read the word the. Then they know it's a word, but not before. It is a syllable. The dog, the house, the cat, the car. It's just... Okay? Not until you read it do you know it's a word. Then, then they say, well, what does it mean? Good luck on that one. And this is what frustrates reading teachers to no end. The kid can't learn the word the. She's taught it to them a thousand times. But she'll read the word brontosaurus once, and they never forget it. So rarity effect has some purpose. This list of 25 words I have up here was a study done back in the 40s at Columbia University. And they did a count, a word count. Oh, gosh, can you imagine with the old adding machines? Four and a half million words they counted. In American magazines, which is the population average reading ability. And they found that one and a half million of that four and a half million words was represented with these 25 words. The, and, uh, to, of, I, in, was, that, it, he, you, for, had, in, with, her, she, his, as, on, at, have, but, me. That's it. 
those 25 words, 33% are reading done. And so in our state and across the nation now, most kindergarten teachers are being told, teach these 25 words, teach them well, and have the kids know them as well as they know their letter names. So that when they emerge from kindergarten, they have 33% of all the words they'll ever read in their life in their heads. Now, I said it was 50, right? Not 33. Okay. If you go to 50% of all the words you read, you have to add another 82 words to that list of 25, 107, and I have that pictured here. Now, I can give you these PowerPoints if anyone wants them. Does anyone want some? Okay. <laughs> Okie doke, maybe out of charge. No, just kidding. Um, I, charge, I never charge for PowerPoints. In fact, I have them on my website at my university that I'll show you at the end, too, so that you can go there. But I'll be happy to make them available to your, to your group. Uh, this group, by this group of words, the, we refer to them as the Zeno sight word list, is, um, is found in the Educator's Word Guide. This 107 makes up 50% of all the words kids will ever read. So the advice that we now give to first grade teachers is make sure that by the end of first grade, your first graders know these 107 words and know them by sight. That means that one out of every two words a child ever looks at will be, by the end of first grade, in their immediate word recognition ability. Now, knowing the kinds of students you work with, not all of whom are sighted, still these words are so highly frequent, you want these words to be recognized virtually by sight, which means without analysis. All you want those students to do is to either see them or feel them, and the words should come immediately without any kind of additional analysis. Now, why would I stop at 107? I see schools and, uni I see schools and university classes and all kinds of places telling teachers to do the next 200 words or the 300 words or the 500 words. Learn, learn the fry instant word lists of 100, 200, 300, 400, 600. Well, let me show you why I stop at 107 in terms of fluency. If you want to get 15% more fluency out of your students, look at what you have to teach. You go from 107 to 930. That means if you do spend that time teaching an additional 100 words beyond this 107, do you know how much it will increase your students' fluency? 2%. That's an awful lot of work to get 2%. When the first hundred gets you 50 and the second hundred gets you two, better to learn that next hundred words through a lot of reading than through the arduous work of learning those words through memory one at a time. And then look what you have to do if you want to get the next 15%, get 80% of the words. This, is, this gives you a sense of what kids are doing as they're developing as readers. In order for them to get up to 65% fluent reading, 
What I mean by that is words they know without having to analyze them, they have to learn 930. If they have a 5,000-word vocabulary in reading, meaning that they can recognize 5,000 words without analysis, and most of us are that. We know also the words that we read by sight without analysis. You have to learn 5,000 to get to 80. And then notice this one. 13% of the words that you and I read in that last 20% occur one in a million. So there is a diminishing return on teaching sight words, and I want you to see that. I want you to see there's a clear flattening of the curve at 107 words. And to spend much more time on teaching sight words beyond that 107 is not good cost-benefit effort. Now, good fluency lessons always include some elements of explicit instruction about what fluency is so kids can receive specific feedback and lots and lots of practice. And the other good news is there's lots of ways to provide that practice which we have found to be effective. And I've listed some of those here. We're going to go through some of them. When I talk about instruction, I mean explicit instruction. Now, we're using this term a lot in my field. I'm sure you've heard of it. Explicit meaning that you're very clear, that you explain to students why they're learning something, what they're going to be learning, and when where it'll be helpful. You model for them how to use or use that skill or strategy or knowledge, and then you help them, you assist them through scaffolding their efforts and gradually release more responsibility to them to do this thing over time. So reading will be, in, in practice, highly scaffolded early on by the teacher and more independent as you go along. <clears throat> now, I have a picture here of one teacher who's clearly taught her students what fluency is. She has this beautiful wall in her classroom, and at the top of this wall... She has listed the word fluency up here, and then she has these things that say accuracy rate and expression with definitions, and then down the side, down these columns, and I'll show you more pictures in a moment of this wall, she has what you can do to make yourself a more accurate reader, some hints, some fix-up strategies, what you can do to increase your rate or to control your rate, and what you can do to get better expression. And she's, she's taught this explicitly, and it's posted on her wall for her students to constantly refer to and for her to refer to in future instruction. And uh, she also has this neat little evaluation technique she uses where uh, there's a happy frowny face on uh, correct reading or accurate reading speed and rate and expression. And the kids all have uh, tongue depressor sticks that these same smiley faces are on. Each kid has a set of them, and one of them's blue, which is the frowny face, and one of them's orange, which is the sunny, smiley face. And when they're done practicing as a group, she asks them, how did we do? Did we read accurately? And the kids hold up their little um, tongue depressor things with the smiley face or frowny face. Uh, this teacher told me a story one day that she came in and was reading after recess. And she was reading a book aloud to them to settle them down she noticed out the corners of her eyes that there were colors emerging <laughs> in her field of vision. 
As she looked up from her book, there were several children holding up their faces, and they were all the blue faces, frowny face. (laughs) And she said to the children, what? What's wrong? You're not reading with expression, teacher. (laughs) So, you know, when you teach these kids things, they use them on you. but some kind of a display in the classroom that shows that you have taught children what fluency is so that as you give them feedback about their reading, they know how to receive that feedback. If you say to them, your pitch is not what it should be when you come to a comma or a period or a question mark or an exclamation point, your juncture is not correct. You aren't reading through the phrases to the punctuation. That's the kind of specific feedback kids need. And what they get in classrooms is, that's good. You sound really good. You sound like you talk. Well, I'm working in Mississippi right now. Yeah. If you read like you talk, it ain't real fluent someplace. That's not good feedback. That's praise. And there's a difference between praise and feedback. If you want students to get feedback, you must first teach them what you're going to be giving them by way of feedback. And these kinds of classroom displays like this one that says fluency and then you have the arm going up with accuracy and rate and expression and again, that you can tell the teachers taught this, can't you? Now, I also have on this PowerPoint, and I won't go through it in depth, but this is an exact lesson plan on how to teach a lesson on expression. It's an explicit fluency lesson plan, and it's about how to get kids to express their pitch, their juncture, their stress, their volume more appropriately. It begins with an explanation of what, why, when, and where. It moves to modeling of reading fluently, and strangely enough, we've added in something else. Having been the technical assistant for my state and been all over the nation on reading first as a technical assistant, uh, working on fluency, I discovered something in the 6,000 classrooms I've been in in my career. There are some kids in the room that when you start reading... Their, their bodily reaction, if you watch them, is, oh, there she goes again, sounding like a good reader. <laughs> to be expected. Nothing new. That's teacher. She's a good reader. <laughs> and so you capture no attention. So we found that by teacher doing a non-example, sounded like a broken reader, those uh, hard-to-capture kids all of a sudden perk up. When teacher doesn't sound like, run, run as fast as you can, you can't catch me, I'm the gingerbread man, you sound like, run, run, as fast. And the kids start going, what happened to teacher? Is her battery running down? They start paying more attention. So this non-example we found, at least in the case of fluency, seems to capture student attention.
and gives them, again, a clearer picture around the feedback they'll get. What do you mean by accurate, teacher? Model what accurate reading is and then do what? Model inaccurate reading and have the print up there so they're watching it so they can see that you're missing the words. Or non-expressive reading, robot reading, or word-by-word reading. Okay, We know what bad reading sounds like. We just never let the kids hear it out of our mouths. And then we scaffold them through whole group activities and practice to small group and partner work to individual. And so this lesson would walk you through that. And you see here a child who's now progressed to the point where they're reading on their own. And we use these uh, what we call fluency phones, for lack of a better term. You might call them something else. They're PVC pipe. And um, strangely enough, these little PVC pipes, when you have kids read aloud into those, they don't read very loud because they just about break their eardrum if they do. We also make the bottoms of our PVC phones like this swivel um, so that one reader can use it or you can swivel the mouthpiece out and have pairs of readers. So one's a listener, one's a reader sitting next to each other. You also want to have a large bottle of Lysol handy. It's a funny thing about reading into these things. Now, <clears throat> in whole group practice, we have a lot of effective practices. These are referred to as choral reading. Bringing the whole group along in choral reading is one of the most effective things we can do. The key reason that round-robin reading didn't lead to fluency, all of you know what round-robin reading is in here? That's turn-taking. Any kind of turn-taking, we found, does not result in as good a gains in reading fluency as when you don't turn-take. Why? It's very simple. If you're waiting your turn, your practice time is constrained. So if you allocate 30 minutes for reading practice and you only get to read for two minutes, that's your practice time. How good will you get at two minutes of reading? Two minutes of reading practice a day. You're not very good. So the more that we can use practice methods that involve all students most of the time or all of the time if possible, the more practice we get. That is why a lot of teachers sent kids off to read on their own, assuming what? They're practicing. So choral reading gives us lots of great ways to practice. Echoic choral reading, unison choral reading, antiphonal choral reading, mumble reading. Now I'm going to take us through each of these. Here's a poem. For this one I'll need my glasses to see it here. (laughs) The New Kid on the Block by Jack Prolutsky. Now if we were doing a unison reading, we would do what? We would read all together. Now remember, these are choral readings, so what are you as the teacher? You are the chorister. The idea with choral reading is that you are reading as a choir. The only thing that's missing is the music. And even that doesn't have to be missing. I think that in most classrooms these days we need more music. 
I think about what John Goodlad wrote in the book, A Place Called School, when he revisited 10,000 classrooms in the United States, and his summary remark was, classrooms are marked by emotional neutrality. Oh, what an awful condition. We can do reading fluency practice all together as a group, not just reading words, but also singing words. And my speech-language pathologist friends tell me that singing really helps children with speech problems. Think of Mel Tillis, who stutters when speaking, but sings flawlessly. So you can put words up to practice reading fluency that are song lyrics, and the kids love it. They do love this. But the point is we start all together and stay together. And if the kids don't start together and don't stay together with you, then what should you do? What do choir directors do when that happens? You cut them off and you what? Start them again. Now there's other kinds of choir reading besides unison. What else is there? There's echoic, meaning what? One part of the one group echoes the other group or the students echo the teacher. I have found that students echoing teachers is not that effective. I taught a lesson on the Navajo Indian Reservation about a year ago for a group of Reading First teachers while they watched me, and I did echo reading. And as I was teaching the lesson, I noticed something in the students that I talked to the teachers about later that they didn't see. And that was this. If I do this, close your eyes, okay? There's a new kid on the block. Echo me. Did you have to read anything? That's what I was noticing. I was supposed to be giving these kids reading practice, and what I was giving them was listening practice. Echo reading can be very ineffective unless you do one of two things with it as a teacher. Number one. Exceed their listening vocabulary, <laughs> their short-term listening memory. <laughs> Which means then, close your eyes now. There's a new kid on the block, and boy, that kid is tough. That new kid punches hard. That new kid plays real rough. Okay, now echo me. <laughs> See what I just did to you? What did I do? I exceeded your listening memory. If you're going to use echoic reading with students, you must exceed their listening memory, or that's what you'll get, is listening memory practice. Another way to do it that works really well is for you to echo them. They start the reading, you echo them, and sound like them. If they sound sing-song, there's a new kid on the block, you come back at them with what? There's a new kid on the block. And they look at you like, what's wrong with you? Well, I sound like you. You do? Yeah, that's how you sound. Then they'll ask things like, well, how should we sound? Then you can model, see? Another kind of, of uh, choral reading is antiphonal. If you take the word apart, being a language person, it means antiphonal, meaning what? Sounding against. The old church choirs had lofts that sat across from each other with the organ in the middle and the altar 
and they did this antiphonal choral work where one sang and then the other sang. So in a classroom, what that looks like is this side sings and this side sings or the back sings or the front. What I like to do when I'm doing this kind of choral work with students is I divide the room in fourths, and then I get to be really the choir director because I started as a music major. And so I actually took choral conducting when I was in my freshman year, and, and so I can do the you come in and, and you and you. You know, and you, you, you point to the groups and you do this antiphonal stuff and they never know. They've got to be going with you. They've got to watch you as a choir director and track their reading. That's more challenging and they like it more. If you want to raise the ante a little bit more in that same kind of a setting of antiphonal reading, use reading rounds. Remember when we used to sing, row, row, row the boat, and then the teacher started, row, row, and you had to stay where? with your little group, while the other group was, try that one in reading fluency practice. I did that about two months ago with a group of, uh, of students in first grade in Ogden, Utah. The teacher says, oh, you can't get these first graders to do that in one lesson. I said, yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. I went in, and after uh, three tries, the kids had it, and they loved it. Let's do it again. You always know when you've done well. You know, little first graders are just so shy. Let's do it again. Okay, you get instant feedback. Then there's this thing called mumble reading that kids like to do. Well, they don't like to, they just do. When you tell a second grader to read silently, this is how it sounds. What are they doing? That's their idea of, well, cl- don't move your lips, okay? <laughs> they sub-vocalize, don't they? Well, all right. What's wrong with that? At least in the earliest stages of reading, as you're trying to develop fluency, they do mumble read and they like it. Now, the key about all of this is don't use one. Use them all. On one page of a book, do choral reading with, that's unison. Next page, do antiphonal. Next page, do rounds. Next page, or if you're doing repeated readings of the same thing like this one, the new kid on the block, um, use different ones. So, for example, here, this one's called Be Glad Your Nose Is On Your Face. Be glad your nose is on your face, not pasted in some other place. For if it were where it is not, you might dislike your nose a lot. Imagine if your precious nose were sandwiched in between your toes. That clearly would not be a treat, for you'd be forced to smell your feet. (laughs) Well, we could read that in unison, if you were close enough to see it. (laughs) Or we could do an echo on our second read. On our third read, I could have this side of the room... Do a line and then this side of the room, and you'd never know which side. Because I, Then we could divide the group into fourths and do antiphonal, back, front, over here, back there. We could do it in the round, start this group, then start that group, then start this group. On the, okay? So you have lots of different ways to practice through a text multiple times without it becoming boring. Okay? And they're all very effective. Because even at the worst, these methods only constrain practice time by 50%. <laughs> OK? 
Okay. Now, another thing that we can use is buddy reading. Once we've done it as a group, we want those kids to practice it some more with a buddy, with a peer, with a tutor. And you can do that with all kinds of people. I liked gray power in my classroom. Gray power was we brought a United Way van into our school from the Senior Citizen Center, and the senior citizens came flowing into, the, into my first grade classroom and read with my children. They loved it. We brought sixth graders down from the upper grades to read with my children. There's lots of potential people to listen and give feedback. Also, you can use tape players, computers, CD players, where children listen and read along with some kind of assisted device for more practice. Now, I go into classrooms and see places called listening centers all the time. Uh, they're not really listening centers because when I ask the teachers, what do you want the kids to do there, they say, well, I want them to practice that book several times. Why do you want them to do that? So they'll get better at reading it. Then you're, that's a fluency center, isn't it? A listening center would be no books and listening to what the tape says and then comprehending it and demonstrating that comprehension. Some teachers get that confused. Most reading centers I see with tapes and with computers like this are reading fluency centers. They're practice. And so you should find out whether the kids actually get any practice with your assessment. Um, so what we do in our place uh, is after they've practiced, we have a recording booth. So they go and do a cold read, then they go practice three to five times, which is what research shows is the optimal amount of practice. Less than three, not enough. More than five, don't get much for it. So multiple readings three to five times of short pieces of text or short books. They do a cold read. They practice, 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 practice. Come back and do a hot read, we call it, or a practiced read in the recording booth on their own tape. And then their, their, their accountability for how they practiced is to turn their tape in to their teacher. And the, t the student does a one-minute read on their tape, and the teacher can randomly pull those tapes out of the basket and do progress monitoring from those tapes on every child in their room once a week. And it doesn't take any time out of the school day for the teacher to do that. And the kids love it. They love going to the recording booth. I also am a big fan of performance. You really want kids to practice hard? You really want them to work for fluency? Tell them they've got to perform it for somebody. Tell them there's going to be an audience to listen to their reading. Give them a reader's theater. And I can, uh, again, on my website that I'll show you at the end, I've got several reader's theater scripts. If you don't have reader's theater scripts, just type reader's theater scripts into any engine on the Internet, and you'll get more than you ever wanted to have. Reader's theater, in the most recent research, uh, Tim Rosinski and I just finished writing the handbook for the reading research, uh, volume four, first chapter ever on fluency. We just finished writing that chapter. Um, reader's theater gets two-year gains with kids who normally only get one. Getting kids involved in reader's theater will double their, their growth in reading. It's motivational, and it is educational and developmental. So reader's theater, that's a kind of performance. Radio reading is another one. 
Uh, radio reading is where you take a, a series of information books and string it together as a newscast. So one kid's reading about uh, Jose Canseco in a sports book, and another kid is reading about uh, volcanoes in uh, Nicaragua, and another kid is reading about mummies in Egypt. And you have one kid pretend with a microphone and a little uh, karaoke box that they're the, the radio announcer. Welcome to the fourth grade students' KBR News broadcast. Now we're going to break away here to our weather person. Amy, what have we got for weather today? And then she reads a piece out of a book she's been reading about weather, an information book, maybe on hail, um, as a newscaster for weather. And then the, then the announcer will break away. Thank you for getting us up on the weather. Now let's break away to our sports writer. Jo Johnny, you've got something to read about Jose Canseco. Let's hear about sports today. And they do this wonderful thing called radio reading. If you've never done that with kids, you have missed a treat. Karaoke box goes a long way. It's almost time, I know. I could go on for an hour. I told you, I t tell me when to breathe, and I'll breathe. Recitation. Where'd that go in our classrooms? Do you remember the old days when you had to stand and recite? You kids like to do that. We lost that somewhere. There's just nothing like having to stand up and recite a poem you know. If you have to dry the dishes, such an awful boring chore. If you have to dry the dishes instead of going to the store. If you have to dry the dishes and you drop one on the floor, maybe they won't make you do the dishes anymore. <laughs> Kids love that, and they love the response they get from an audience when they do it well. And they will practice hard if we give them a chance to perform. And if mom and dad are coming, or someone they care about is coming to listen to them perform, they'll work even harder. Well, set goals with your kids. Give them some kind of recommendation how they can improve every week. Very clear targets. I'd like you to get faster by one word this week. Just one. That's all. And then help them take care of their, their expression. Get them to listen to themselves. That's why we like the recording booth. The first time they listen to themselves, the kids always say what? Do I sound like that? Yep, that's you. Have them track their progress in a little folder that's theirs. How much faster am I getting? How much better is my expression? Now, I've got so much on here that you'll just die from it all. Um, uh, I was going to talk more about independent reading and all the terrible stuff that we found from that. Um, Silent sustained didn't reading didn't work for this reason, and then I'm going to quit. Imagine a driver's education class that was run this way. <laughs> the teacher models how to drive by going off and driving in his or her own car. The teacher does not communicate or interact with students while they drive or tell them how to drive. The students can choose any car on the car lot they want to drive. <laughs> the students can choose any road or traffic condition for their driving practice. They will receive absolutely no guidance because the teacher's off driving his or her own car as a model. <laughs> well, I needn't go farther, but you kind of get the drift why that silent reading practice didn't work. Kids were using books as a prop for going on an in-the-room field trip for 20 minutes. And that is why the practice never worked. 
In one study, they compared 20 minutes a day of reading practice silently against 20 minutes a day of health and grooming instruction. At the end of the school year, the health and grooming kids read as well as the kids who'd had 20 minutes a day of silent reading practice. (laughs) That might tell us we've got a bad practice. Now, teachers love that because you could take a break and sit down and read your own book and go into your own la-la zone. I loved it as a first-grade teacher. Well, I, I would have gone on and on and on because I, I, you know, I, I told Liz that I can do that. I can go on and on and on. Uh, this stuff I love. It's my life, and um, I care a lot about it. Uh, I'm going to show you some covers if I can get this thing to do what it's supposed to do. I want to mention a few good resources for you as practitioners and as assessors and as teachers. These books, that was a little bit of, uh, you know, the the magic in me. Um, I made it appear. Um, Goodbye, Round Robin. The Fluent Reader, which is an excellent book by Tim Rosinski. Building Fluency Lessons and Strategies for Reading Success by Wiley Blevins. And then Strategies for Reading Assessment and Instruction, Helping Every Child Succeed by Yours Truly. Those all have some substantial um, works about fluency in them. And again, once you get this this uh, PowerPoint, uh, you can get it by going to this website, www.cehs.usu.edu forward slash ECC. And I'll leave, I'll, I'm going to leave it up there, so don't worry, it's not going anywhere. Um, can you see it? It's www.cehs.usu.edu with that forward slash thing, then ECC, which stands for Early Childhood Center. So one more time, www.cehs.usu.edu forward slash ECC, and then go to the presentations button on the left-hand side of the screen that will open, press on that, and... I'll have that posted next week. Well, um, I hope that you've gotten some good ideas this morning. I'm very honored to have spent some time with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Russell. Thank you very, very much.